Hello listeners, Kathy Lawless, Life Story Curator, bringing you the podcast series, How Did I Get Here? A series of interviews designed for people just starting out in their careers, people in transition or possibly feeling stuck. Giving them access to the stories of people who have been there, done that, so that they might be inspired with some new ideas or maybe just comforted knowing they are not alone, that everybody starts somewhere and everybody goes through times of transition and times when they feel stuck. Today, I'm very excited to be interviewing Veronica Munoz. Welcome, Veronica. Thank you. So excited to be here. Yeah, thank you. So Veronica and I met through the Wise Women Group here in Denver and uh, have just gotten to know each other over the last year. So I'm excited to get to know her official story or more about her official story. And Veronica is the executive director of ACG Denver. So this should be interesting to learn about, well, what is ACG? And uh, what, what does it mean to be the executive director? But before we get into that, um, listeners, as you know, we always like to start with the icebreaker question. So we get to know Veronica more on a personal level. So Veronica, if you wouldn't mind telling us about where you grew up, how many siblings, where you were in the birth order, and how you think maybe that shaped you as an adult. Sure. So I grew up in Chicago. I was born and raised in Chicago. I'm an only child. Only? Okay. <laughs> And, you know, I've, I've heard it said that only children are either very mature or very immature. You know, they're the, the oldest or the youngest, you know, in that kind of category. And um, as a friend of mine put it, it's like, I was born mature. <laughs> you know, I was always around adults and it was my parents and me. And so it was all, um, you know. I was a a very serious child. Very serious (laughs) child. Okay. So what did, um, what kind of activities did you do as a young person? Um, Well, my main activity that I started as a young person and continues to this day is dance. Um, I love, I've danced all my life and it started with, I think I was five years old and my mother took me to the ballet to see Giselle and I was enthralled. I mean, I saw on stage, it looked like a painting come to life, you know? Oh, wow, left quite an impression, sounds like. Yeah, it was magical to me. And I didn't know that you could learn to do that. And I said, mom, I wanna do that, you know? And she's like, okay. She put me in a class, tap, jazz, ballet, the works, and I haven't stopped. Wow, so you started with all of those different, I guess you call those genres of of dance and then, Mm And so do you still do all of them today or did you gravitate toward one? No, well, uh, I did ballet mostly and a lot of contemporary dance, um, but you know, ballet is really hard on the body once you reach, well, some say once you reach, it's always hard on the body, but <laughs> over 40, it's really rough. Although I did take classes right up until I moved here four years ago. Um, so then after I decided that um, around in my thirties, I thought I need to do something that's a little more social than, you know, be with a bunch of girls at, a, at the bar, at the B-A-R-R-E, not B-A-R. <laughs> at the ballet bar. <laughs> so I took up salsa dancing and I got into Latin dancing and did that for 15 years. And then later on took up West Coast Swing and Hustle. And that's what I'm doing now. And country, also country, I've competed in country dancing. Wow. What else have you competed in? All of those other ones that you've listed? Yeah, and West Coast Swing and Hustle also. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I get to, you're at a certain level of dance where you probably can learn it very quick, very quickly, and then you can start competing. 
Whereas a yeah, I, yeah, I could. I, I mean, I'm, I'm used to choreography and this was a, a lot different because it's lead follow. So this was a very interesting exercise for me, you know, me, the control freak, you know, you're trained, I was trained in ballet and any other kind of dance to, you know, know, memorize your choreography, you always have to anticipate eight counts ahead of where you're going to be, you got to know where you're going to end up. And when you're in lead follow partner dancing, you know, I'm the follow and I have a lead and he is going to signal me what he wants me to do and I cannot anticipate that. So in the beginning, it was very difficult because I tried to, you know, I was like, oh, I feel like turning. I'm going to turn. Well, no, you can't do that unless he asks you to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so it was terrible. Interesting. So I had to learn to be very present and in the moment and really, you know, it's, it's nonverbal signals, you know, it's how connected you are to your partner, you know, how, how present you are and how connected you are to the music and how you're working together in order to get those signals and move in a way that is, you know, just flows. Wow. So, and how, how was it giving up that control? Oh, it was terrible. <laughs> I like to be in charge, which, it, you know, you'd think I'd learn to lead, but I haven't. <laughs> because they can't, you be, I change change the rules and say, well, I want to lead, you follow. <laughs> well, exactly. And I can, you know, there's nothing stopping me from learning to lead. But, you know, like I tell people, I lead all day long. I don't mind following on my off time, you know. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's a good point. Yeah, because then you can be, it gives you uh, a different way to exercise your mind and your body then, right? Definitely. Right. And as a ballerina, as a former ballerina, I love to turn. And, you know, you do a lot of turns when you're following and um, you, you get to like, the, the lead is the frame and you're the picture. So you get to like really embellish and style. And, and so I get to be flashy. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Well, you know, I always ask for pictures to accompany the audio on this. So we're going to have to have some dance pictures from you. I'm sure. You oh, know. of course. Of course. Cool. <laughs> okay. So uh, introvert or extrovert? Oh, introvert for sure. For sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, that's why I love dance is because I could express myself without having to speak. Oh, interesting. We'll have to see how that plays out as your story goes on. <laughs> oh, I, I was very anxious about this. It's like, oh my God, she's gonna talk to me for, for an hour and, and this is gonna be public and people are gonna know who I am. And oh my God. <laughs> That's why it took a while to get it scheduled, I'm sure. Exactly. <laughs> I was very stressed about it. <laughs> well, hopefully you're feeling more comfortable as we get to I am. it. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So on the fun meter scale of one to five, one being couch potato and five being the life of the party, where do you put yourself? I put myself in the middle. I'm a little bit of both. I'm an introvert, but I like people. I do like being social. You know, I don't, but I have those moments that when I'm in a crowd, the worst scenario to me is to walk into a room full of strangers and have to network. I mean, that's the worst scenario. And I have to do it all the time for my job. Isn't it your job? It's totally, yeah, but by now I know everybody, you know? Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, so um, it, it starting out is always pretty rough for me. Like first day of school was really, you know, uh, filled with anxiety. And then after I get comfortable, I get to know people. Um, but I do like people and I love like what we're having here, one-on-one -on -one conversations or conversations in small groups. I like getting to know people, the superficial small talk does, I have no interest in. Um, but I, I love to go out and especially dance all night with a lot of people and then come home and, you know, recharge my batteries and have that alone time. 
All righty. Well, I'm anxious to see how that plays out in your in your current role. <laughs> so, uh, risk factor or risk meter on a scale of one to five, where do you put yourself? Put myself in the middle. I'm a middle kind of girl, you know. It's like, well, Buddha said the middle way, you know. Um, I, it's I, I by nature I'm a little bit risk averse, but when I look back in my life, I take risks. I, I think them through. I like to think they're very calculated risks. Sometimes you just have to close your eyes and jump. But I do, I have taken them and I haven't regretted that at all. Yeah, very cool. Even you know, when I, they didn't work out. <laughs> well, I'm a middle child. And so I kind of gravitate to the middle on a lot of things too. So I tend to always kind of put myself in that zone. So I can relate. I can relate. Okay, well, Veronica, tell us a little bit about what it means to be the executive director of ACG Denver. And then we'll go back into how did I get here? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, it's a very fun job. I mean, uh, ACG is Association for Corporate Growth, and uh, we are the middle market business community. Um, we provide access of, uh, to networks of relationships. And it, we also provide resources, but I think the key here is relationships. And I love that this is a group of, uh, of, of professionals who service middle market companies and growth. Um, we're private equity, investment bankers, you know, service professionals. And it's, it's all about connecting and doing deals together, whether that deal is, you know, mer merger acquisition or that deal is getting hired, whatever, it's all a deal. And these are people who build relationships and that's how they make their living. And we always tell people, you know, you're not going to join ACG and walk into a meeting or two and come out with two or three deals. That's not how it works. It's long-term. You have to put the work in and make the investment in getting to know people and not just on a business level. I mean, the people who are the most successful are the people who they, they know each other on a personal level. They like each other. Um, they understand things about each other and they want to work together or they want to refer their friends and their colleagues to them. So it really is about building relationships. And, and that's what I like the most about it. So it's about really um, you're referring a friend almost versus, um, you know, a transaction occurring. Yeah, I mean, this is some, mm -hmm. someone I know and trust and I, I think would be an asset to you and would be a value for you to meet. Yeah, yeah, very cool. Well, uh, let's go back then to junior high and high school. Uh, as a young person, what were you wanting to be when you grew up? Were you thinking that you would be a uh, executive director leading this group of you know, middle market businesses? Yes, that's what I always dreamed of. And here I am. <laughs> <laughs> and then I set a plan out and I hit it. <laughs> there you go. It just worked nicely, didn't it? No, I wanted to be a ballerina. But I mean, seriously, I was on my way to becoming, you know, I was 16 and I was dancing five, six nights a week. And, and I wanted to dance, you know, that's what I wanted to do. Ah, so is, is that what you went to college for then? Did you go to... No, no, no. Um, you know, by the time it's, it's a very young profession, especially in the ballet world, your parents have to make a lot of sacrifices. And there are parents who, you know, their mothers give up the job and they move to a small apartment in New York and they, the kid go, gets homeschooled and goes to class. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And the kid, you know, you're, you're 13, 14, you know, maybe younger. 
Um, and it's highly competitive. It's hard on your butt. I, I mean, you know, you can go on and on and then you make no money and <laughs> it's a great career, <laughs> but it's art, right? Um, yeah. My father was not about to let my mother do that. My mother would have done it. But he was like, hell no, you're going to starve. I was like, dad, that's part of the job description. That's what ballerinas do. They starve. It's okay. <laughs> He's like, no. Um, and then, so I danced with company with a company in, in Chicago for a little while, but I liked school. You know, I liked being intellectually challenged. And so I, I ended up going to Purdue University and um, I have, my parents are from Europe. My mother's French, my father's Spanish, and all my family is in France and Spain and in uh, Belgium. And, and so I spent a lot of my years growing up, going back and forth to Europe. So I was raised in Paris almost as much as I was raised in Chicago um, and you know, speak both languages and had a very European upbringing. So I was very attracted to uh, the international arena. And I thought, well, I could do international business. So that's what I majored in. Wow. Two very different cities, major, major cities, yeah. Chicago and Paris, but wow, yeah. two very different cities. So, so do you speak both per, uh, French and Spanish then? I do. I do. Mm -hmm. wow. Any other languages? No, I, I love Italian. I can understand it, uh, but I don't speak it fluently, but I, I can totally understand it. And, you know, I, I just absolutely adore the language. Wow. Well, what a fascinating upbringing, man. Yeah. So, okay. So you get an international business degree. Uh, do you go on to do more schooling or do you get that first job or what happened next? No. So um, after I graduated from college, I got a job at uh, a translation company and they actually did some translation manuals for for heavy equipment like Mitsubishi tractors or things like that <laughs> and <laughs> I got a job <laughs> I know and I got a job as a proofreader and I realized oh I don't like proofreading at all and I was proofreading in different languages you know so yeah. um and then I ended up that was a little bit restrictive for me. So I ended up being their office manager because I liked, I, I realized I liked, I'm, I'm an organizational freak. So I like to keep things very tidy and organized and run things and keep on deadline. And so my boss realized, oh, she'd probably be better at, you know, managing all these different translators and, and people in the office. And so I ended up doing that. And then one of my colleagues got, got a job as a recruiter and she called me up and she's like, hey, I'm going to recruit you. <laughs> I said, for what? And she said, budget rent a car is looking for somebody to do some sales support. I said, well, that doesn't sound very interesting. And she said, yeah, well, they have a Latin American Caribbean division. I was like, ooh, I want to get in that. She said, well, they have no openings, but you know, you can get a job. If you get a job in there, maybe you can slide in. So I got a job there and uh, befriended everybody in the Latin American division um, and who are friends of mine to this day. Um, but after a couple of years, I realized that there were no openings there and um, I wanted to go to grad school. So I started taking classes uh, to go to grad school and um, decided to leave there to go to Thunderbird International uh, School of, uh, Graduate School of International Management is out in Arizona. Oh, interesting. So then you had to move to Arizona and I moved to Arizona um, and it's right outside of Phoenix. It's north of Phoenix and it's only a master's program. And I think it was 30% international students in the middle of nowhere <laughs> back then. It was like the desert and the, the, the campus was on this old um, 
you know, uh, this old kind of airfield for World War II airplanes. And it was built, that's why it's called Thunderbird. And it was built on that. And I lived in a, in a small apartment uh, across the street. And, and uh, you know, there were very few women, um, but it was very international. It was fantastic. I loved every minute of it. Ah, so it really got those juices about the international business flowing again. And well, I guess yeah. you're kind of working in an international company, but yeah, we were in this kind of island of, you know, the UN was, you know, dropped in the middle of the Arizona desert. <laughs> it was just Ooh. very strange, but very cool. Cool. And so it's fun because, you know, now I run into people. It's like, we kind of look at each other. You're a T-bird, you know, it's like we kind of figure each other out. It's, it's just really fun. <laughs> yeah, very unique experience. I'm, I'm guessing it's kind of a small group of people. Yeah. Compared to some of the other. And we're everywhere, all over the world. So. Wow. So what did that lead to? A whole lot of nothing I'm afraid of because I graduated in 91 and it was a recession and I had actually applied for the foreign office and I had gone through all the rigors of the testing. There's a written test and oral test and I think they have like a 15% pass rate and I passed and I got my name on the list to get into one of the classes and the government shut down. There's a Bill Clinton cut, uh, for, there was a government freeze and so, I mean, what they should have done is they should have frozen everybody in their places. And then when the government opened back up, however months later it was, they should have taken those lists and moved forward. Well, by then my time on the list had expired and it's like, you got to take the test all over again. Oh. And meanwhile, I had moved back to my parents' house in Chicago. You know, I was like living at home with a master's degree, no job. And by the way, there was a huge recession and only 30% of people, I think, graduating class even got jobs. And I did go back and take the written exam and passed it. And by then, you know, I was like, I really need to get a job. <laughs> so so um, I, got, I got a job at the, um, it was, what was it called? It was the Chicago Academy of Sciences. It's now the Peggy Nortmer Museum. It's a science, a nature museum in Chicago. And there was a group of social scientists who was setting up an international, um, Center for Scientific Literacy in, in the Chicago Academy of Sciences. And I thought, oh, okay, so that's a cool place to work. Why don't I apply there? And so that got me into the non-for-profit realm. And I ended up running the office for these uh, social scientists. And there were scientists coming in from you know, Asia and coming and doing some work. Um, and you know, it was kind of fun, but, you know, it was not exactly, you know, I had a master's degree and I wasn't making a lot of money. And a friend of mine, I was talking to a woman I knew, she was an acquaintance, and she said, you know, this woman I used to work for now works for the American Bar Association, and she's running this commission on women in the profession. And my ears perked up, and I said, well, I don't know anything about lawyers, but what is this commission on women? She said, well, it sounds like a very cool job. You should go talk to her. Because I think she's looking for somebody. I was like, okay. I had taken in Thunderbird a semester, a winterim class on women leadership. And it was amazing. It just completely opened my eyes to something that I didn't know was near and dear to my heart. I mean, I was always, I was quite the budding feminist, but you know, we had women come in, there were executives from Honeywell, which was uh, headquartered there. We had the first woman speaker of, this, um, of the state 
representatives. We had just some women leaders come in and talk to us and I, I was just transfixed. And I had written a paper, so I, I dusted off my paper and I went over to interview with this woman who looked like she was a flower child out of the 60s. Here I thought I'm going, you know, it's law firm, I'm gonna be all buttoned up, I'm gonna be in my suit, you know. And she shows up and she's like, you know, big frizzy hair, and she's like, <laughs> you know, really loose clothing. So and the interview was like, hey, so so what do you think? <laughs> and I'm like, I did this and this and that, and here's what I have to offer. You know, I had no idea, you know, it was like, and she hired me. And I walked into this amazing office in downtown Chicago, right on Lake Michigan. And one of my first jobs was we're going to put on a celebration of the 75th anniversary of women's right to vote. This was 95. And Veronica, go. <laughs> And I was like, this was part of their annual conference. There were 15,000 lawyers coming into town, you know? And I was like, okay. I was like, wouldn't it be fun to like hire some, you know, actors to do some kind of what they call, um, I can't remember what they call it, but it's like the integration theater. Like you walk, it's a reception, you walk in and they interact with you and they, they're all dressed up in suffragette costumes and they ask you, you know, to vote. And there's other people getting on a stump speech saying, no, don't give women the vote. And we had, you know, music and we had, I mean, we just recreated a suffragist rally and it was off the charts. Wow. Wow. How cool. And I did all this research. You know, I heard, you know, I researched about Alice Paul and I researched about Elizabeth Cady Stanton and all these amazing women. And, and it was so amazing. We had like 600 people go through, which apparently was a lot. I didn't, I, I had no idea. But it was really one of those amazing experiences. And of course, we're, we're dealing with issues and it was shortly after the um, Anita Hill Clarence Thomas hearings. And so all the law firms were like, okay, well, sexual harassment, what the, you know, not just law firms, but you know, all businesses were sitting there going, what do we do with this? How do we behave? And so we would create manuals on sexual harassment policies for law firms. You know, this is what you can do. This is what you can't do. This is how you should treat your, 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 your employees. And this is what's fair. And this is what's legal. And this is what's not legal. And, and that had a huge impact. Wow. So you uh, start out with doing an event, a celebration, but then it gets into training and, and right. leadership very quickly, very quickly. Yeah. I mean, we had speakers come. We had an awards, uh, a very famous kind of trailblazer awards. Ruth Bader Ginsburg came and spoke. Uh, Hillary Clinton came and spoke. You know, Anita Hill. We'd have like the superstars come in. So it was very exciting. I thought, man, this is it. This is, this is the best job ever. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it sounds like, and it sounds like it was right in a sweet spot for you too, in terms of it was that near and dear to your heart, which you hadn't really known, but it really was blossoming in terms of women's issues, but also organizing things, putting things out there. But then also there's a performance element that I can see yeah. that's part of this is coming through. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting that, you know, when I think back, it's always the show must go on and you never let them see you sweat. I mean, the thing is you're, when you dance, you're doing something that's incredibly difficult, but you have to make it look easy. Like someone once said, you know, if you look at a, the lead guitarist of a band and he's riffing on his guitar and he's making all these faces and it looks like he's putting so much effort and it's just so intense, you know? Well, in dance, it's the opposite. You get out there and you're doing something, you could be like, bleeding toes and you know pulled muscles 
but you're out there looking light and airy and like it's nothing. So. Oh, yeah, that is an interesting contradiction or a, con a con con contrast, I guess, is the word I'm looking for between the two. Yeah, because it wasn't you, you didn't want to look like you were struggling at all. No. And so work for me, it's like, OK, it's showtime. So I'm going to come here and I'm going to perform and I'm take on this role of director or whatever I'm doing. And, and this is, you know, we're going to put on this event. And to me, it has to be seamless. You know, nobody has to see the, the, how the sausage is made. You know, this is the show. And our job is to make everybody in the show look good. Wow. And anyone who shows up to the show, enjoy it. And the whole, wow. And, cool. and get value, you know. Yeah. Right. So you're in the ideal job. Where, how does that continue to progress? So then uh, the floor uh, goes out from under me. My boss gets promoted. And so my boss, who is this, you know, kind of flower child, kind of really cool person, becomes a mentor to me. And she gets uh, promoted to director of the president's office of the American Bar Association. And I literally, I was, it was like six months after I started the job and I went into the bathroom and locked myself in the stall and cried. I was like, well, things are just going so great. You know, it's a great job and I'm losing, you know, my mentor. And she's like, don't worry. I'm just a few floors above you. You can call me anytime, come up and talk. And her, the, the woman who replaced her was, yeah, it was the polar opposite. You know, it was not a good thing. Um, you know, she was very controlling. She didn't like what we did. She, it was, it was just a lot of second guessing. And, and I, I mean, it, it was just, it didn't work. And to the point where I was started looking for a job and I called her name was, and I called my mentor, Patsy. Uh, and I said, you know, what am I going to do? You know, this is kind of miserable. And she said, look, I have a job up here. It's the president's correspondence job and it's a demotion for you. But you can regain your mental health and look for a job while you're doing this job, you know, and until another opportunity comes. And she said, it's a risk. It's up to you. I thought it through and I thought I'm going to take it. So I took it. And, you know, so I took a downgrade. They couldn't pay me less, which was good, but I took a downgrade. Um, but eventually she restructured the office and I asked, I just went to her. I said, you know what? I've never done a budget. I don't know how to do finances. I want to learn. She goes, okay, you have the budget. So I got the budget of the president of the American Bar Association. I started learning how to manage a budget. Um, and I've said, I've never had staff report to me. And she's like, okay, you go hire this, you know, go hire the, for this position. And I did that. And, um, and so I built myself up to the point where I was eventually promoted to um, special advisor, which is sort of like a speechwriter slash chief of staff position for the president of the ABA. And that was an enormous learning experience in watching leadership up close. Um, I was able to work with the second woman president of the American Bar Association. The Bar Association had been founded in 1878, and this was 2000, and we were only on the second. The first oh, woman yeah. president were in 95, <laughs> yeah, and the second woman president. So we're talking. This is an association of 400,000 members, you know, and we have an advocacy, and we have a, a government advocacy piece uh, office in D.C., and so it's a powerful organization. <laughs> Needless yeah. to say. I mean, they have their own House of Representatives, 
you know, their parliament system, it's a big deal. So, um, and, you know, that person's very visible and whenever there are, there's, you know, Supreme Court cases or any, you know, type of issue, they're on Good Morning America and they're being interviewed. So it's a very big deal. And so I worked with her. Um, and then after that, uh, I worked with the first ever black president of the American Bar Association, Dennis Archer, who was a former mayor of Detroit. And that was a huge deal because uh, when you look back at the applications for membership at the ABA, like in the 1920s or 30s, you know, they actually have uh, a question in there that's, that excludes people of color. I mean, they don't outright exclude them, but you know, they basically ask them, you know, I can't remember what exactly how the, the question was formed, but it was clear that it was there for purposes of excluding people of color. And that was a triumph to have him there. And for me to work with him directly, you know, I was, you know, writing for them, shadowing them, writing articles for them, um, working with their schedulers, you know, going on site and doing meetings. For example, I would go to the United Nations that we'd have a UN day of law and meet with, you know, people with officials at the UN uh, on international law issues. Um, I sat in uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Anthony Kennedy's chambers with the president of the ABA. I don't know how many people can say I've actually sat in a Supreme Court Justice chambers. That's pretty exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> but I have, and it was like, wow, this is very cool, you know? And, and it traveled all over the country, you know, working for the president and, and, and managing their schedules, their events, their just everything, their initiatives. It was fascinating. It was fast, and it was fascinating to watch how, you know, the older white men who were in that position versus the women, the younger people, or women or pe people of color who were new to the position, how they functioned, and it was really fascinating. Just you know how easy and confident, and just kind of you know, this is where I'm supposed to be. That all the white men were, and you didn't get that sense from the women or the people of color. I mean, not that they weren't, they, they were extraordinary leaders in their own right, but it was clear that this was, we were breaking new ground and they were establishing a legacy. Uh, and it was all very fascinating. Wow, right, it sounds like, I mean, and then to get to be on the inside of that, to see how the leadership plays out um, as well as you're a contributor. So it's not just like you're a bystander or you know you are actually contributing to the whole cause and moving things forward yourself. Exactly, so. exactly. And it's like, um, yeah, I felt very fortunate to to be working with both of them and 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 the others too. I mean, you know, most of the presidents were were wonderful. Every you know, and and they had their thing and and they had their initiatives that they were interested in. And it's the law, and it affects us as a society. So it really is pervasive and and really impactful. Yeah. Well, I look at your background to this point. So you've got the international business and you're working and you're at the UN. You've, um, uh, you've been at the Bar Association for a bit. So now you're, you're seeing all this legal stuff and then you get involved with all the government. Wow. I mean, that's just quite the broad view uh, of a business. I mean, when, yeah, it just seems like you've got a very, you've got depth and breadth here in terms of the business government and uh, politics even, so, wow. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And it was highly, I mean, a very, very political environment. 
So I always thought it was a microcosm of how the White House must function. You know, I mean, you know, doing appointments to key positions and, you know, you had to balance out, you know, who owed you a favor versus who really deserved the position versus who was going to give you a rough time versus who would really bring some, um, some uh, shine a light on a particular issue who was an expert. Yeah, it was just really fascinating. Yeah. So a lot of thought leadership as well as influencing going on. Sounds mm-hmm. Like. Mm-hmm. Well, very cool. So then is that kind of the stepping stone to where you are today or kind of what happened? It sounds like an ideal job for you. Well, I was there for 20 years. So after that, I, um, I was asked to apply for the director of the Commission on Women. You know, I was something like a project manager before then. And now uh, there was a there was some trouble in the commission. They had some staffing issues and the, the, the director had been put on leave or she was kind of on her way out. And there was some clashing with the members and the commission on women had had such a phenomenal reputation. And, and I was hearing rumblings of, oh, you know, those women, they're like getting, getting all worked up. And I was like, no, this is not why we established the commission on women so that people could say, oh, look here, those, those women are acting up again. No, no, <laughs> we need to get back to the position of influence. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Hillary Rodden Clinton had set this up and, and it was considered, you know, a very big deal to, to, to you know, when, when someone from the Commission on Women spoke, um, you know, legislation was passed. I mean, you know, you didn't mess around with that. So, so at first I thought, well, I'm not sure I really want to do that, but I had been in my, at the president's office for about seven years and I was comfortable. And this is another thing I noticed in my life. Whenever I get comfortable, which is always where I strive to be, I, I, I leave. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. You strive to be there. You get there. and I, then I crave know. comfort. I want to be where I'm established. I know what I'm doing. Comfortable. And the minute I get there, I leave. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Interesting pattern. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I went and, and I was asked by a few people saying, hey, you know, really, you, would you apply for this? You know the commission, you can help them out. You have the influence, you know the board of the ABA. You have all the relationships that can make this a success. I thought, hey, how can I say no? That was my, I loved the job then. So I went back and um, so I did a little bit of, it wasn't a little bit of a turnaround in that sense because there were some financial issues, you know, and, and, and work and rebuilt the staff and, and, it was a commission of appointed uh, 12 commissioners appointed by the ABA president. And we always had two seats for men. We always made sure we had men on our commission. Uh, It was really important because you want diversity and you want their opinion, you want their guidance. I mean, we actually are going through a, a system that is patriarchal that was set up by men for men and we need to know how to navigate it and who better to help us than men. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And they were our greatest allies. So we always had a, a couple seats for men. And then we had a huge group of liaisons from outside organization, National Association of Women Judges, National Association of Women Lawyers. I mean, you know, the Ms. JD, which was a student organization. And man, I mean, we, we did so much. And that I think I had a chair, Bobby Liebenberg, um, who was chair for three years. And she was such an inspiration to me. Working with her was a joy because she had a passion for women's issues and she would go out and, and, and this was a woman who in her personal life had suffered a lot of, you know, had had tragedies in, in, in her family and, and had difficulties. And she was so positive 
I mean, she just loved life and loved what she was doing. And that just infected us all. Wow. So and, it sounds like you had some, some great <laughs> leaders that you got to work with that have really helped you in that ideal job or, or stay in those jobs. Great leader. Um, I mean, we worked on the Paycheck Fairness Act, you know, uh, Ledbetter versus Goodyear, where Lily Ledbetter found out she was getting paid less than men, like 20 years into the job, went to the Supreme Court and they said, no, nah, statute of limitations is up. You should have told us 18 months after you got hired. Well, who knows what, what your colleagues are being paid 18 months after you start a job. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, we worked on Fair pay, pay, for Fair Paycheck Act, and that was the first legislation that Obama signed when he got into office. Um, I mean, we did stuff like that, breaking the glass ceiling. Uh, we did a huge report on the experience of women of color in law firms and in corporate legal departments. And that was an eye opener because they were getting, I mean, women were getting into law school and they were 50%, if not more of the graduating class and they were getting the jobs, but they weren't making partners. I mean, you could count the number of partners or man managing partners of law firm, major law firms on one hand. So we put out, we did studies. I mean, it was just, it was fantastic. Wow. And it sounds like you had good funding for all of this as well. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It was actually fairly easy to raise money. I mean, you go to a law firm and you say, okay, you know, how many of your partners are women? How many of your partners are women of color? And they'd be like, okay, we'll give you money. <laughs> <laughs> Guilt is a powerful tool. Yeah, I guess. Now, did you ever run into any roadblocks because you didn't have a law degree? I mean, you are in the lawyer space. Um, it seems like that might be something they're like, well, what, uh, you know, what, what's your law degree or how's your background? No, I mean, you know, I was an association management professional. I had a business degree and I did think that when I first joined the Bar Association, it might inspire me to go to law school. And it was like, no. <laughs> ah. You know, it's funny. I know we've talked several times about your, um, your, you know, kind of your history and and in your um, career and how you got there before this podcast even, and because you were part of the bar association, I thought you were. I just assumed there was going to be yeah. a law degree in there somewhere. Well, and many lawyers do. They decide they don't want to practice and they go into this. And and so we do have a fair amount of staff. Uh, and and it's especially helpful, you know, when you're like in legal services or you need a certain expertise. Um, but my expertise is running an organization. My yeah. expertise is making sure, you know, coordinating my volunteers. I'm delegating up, I'm delegating down. Um, my expertise is putting on events and raising money and making sure that, you know, we're, we're you know, achieving our mission and our vision and our goals. And so that's where I came in. And the fact that it was lawyers, you know, I think they did rub off on me, no question, because I, I have that kind of reverence for how a word is crafted um, and thinking through all sides of the argument, sometimes too much. You know, I always can see all sides of an argument. You know, I, I think about, I have a certain opinion. It's like, okay, well, that person thinks absolutely polar opposite to me. Well, let's think about what that person's gonna, how that person's gonna feel about what we're talking about. So I'm always like circling around and really trying to take in all different perspectives. Yeah. And I think that's something that I learned on the job. Yeah. Which I think is a good trait of a leader is to look at multiple sides of things versus just kind of having one opinion or one, one right. vision and trying to, to push that through. Yeah. So. As long as you don't let that hold you up for making a decision. Yeah. The worst thing you know, you know, I've been, I've, I've witnessed this at the very top, you know, of people having, uh, leaders having a hard time making decisions and, you know, rather make the wrong one than not make one. Yeah. Sometimes you got to move because yeah. 
you have the you have all the information you're going to get. <laughs> you just have to move forward. So yeah. Well, very cool. So you ended up kind of coming back to where you started, uh, but in the in the leadership role. In the leadership role, yeah, and and that was fantastic. And then uh, then uh, Bobby, you know, rolled off the the chair position, and and again, I was there seven years, and I was comfortable. Oh, <laughs> it was dreamy, comfortable. I knew my stuff, you know, and I knew all the players, and I had all the relationships, and it was great. And so my boss came to me and tapped me on the shoulder. She said, "You know what? The sectional litigation, which is the largest section, over fifty thousand members, and a huge staff." Um, they're had to let go of their, you know, or let go of their executive, uh, their director left and nobody will apply for the job because <laughs> everybody was afraid of that. They're litigators, they're intense, you know, and it was a big, or, you know, it was huge. And, um, and I said, well, I, I that's a rough crowd. She goes, Veronica, the commission on women that, they had their challenges and you manage that. And I said, I understand, but this is a big deal. She goes, yeah, well, you'll be compensated accordingly. <laughs> and because I was comfortable, I said, sure. <laughs> ah. And it was challenging. I had a staff of 27, uh, you know, and it was a $6 million budget and which was bigger than, you know, my little half a million at the commission. And I, and there were some, you know, clashes between staff and, and the members, and they were very, very involved. I mean, all the members there were very, very involved in the work. And it was sometimes it's like, okay, this is what the staff does. This is what the members do. You know, let's make sure we, you know, you, you, you don't need to do my job. I can do my job, you know? Yeah. Um, so there was a little bit of that. And so I had to proceed to rebuild the staff pretty much. And I put together a team of fabulous people. I mean, I ended up, you know, I had certain, I definitely had my challenges in some of those, um, but I put together my management team, you know, we would have our meetings and we called it the cone of silence and you could say anything you wanted, you know, and, and we had a level of trust because it was very challenging and there was some toxicity in the environment in, in some levels that I really wanted to protect my staff from. And um, I think the, the best compliment I ever had was uh, my, the, uh, my former deputy director called me the other day and he said, hey, you know, we had a reunion with all the managers a few weeks ago. And I said, well, how was that? He goes, oh my God, it was magical. So these are people who, you know, they've been through the grind together. Um, we had some rough, rough times and they're still getting together. Wow. Wow. You know, and you, and you created that. I created that. So I, I consider that, you know, my legacy and I'm always really flattered. Yeah. I wasn't even there. I had, I've been in Chicago I would have obviously been invited, but um, I just love that they did that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it kind of lives on uh, um, with or without you. And right. uh, sometimes if it's always dependent on you, then that's not good either. Then you aren't no. leaving them with the legacy. So yeah, it that has to be organic. Yeah, very yeah. cool. Yeah. So, so you must be getting uncomfortable again because somehow, <laughs> somehow you get to Colorado. <laughs> right. So yeah, I, I was there and I, I did that for five years and um, I had gotten married in the interim and my my then husband, you know, now my ex-husband said, you know, I, I really, Chicago, the economy, this and that. And um, we visited Denver and saw 
the bright sunshine and the very dynamic business environment. And he's like, I want to move. And, you know, me being me, I sat with it and thought long and hard and weighed the pros and cons ad nauseum. <laughs> and I was like, what do I do? And I realized I was comfortable in Chicago and I had, there was really nowhere else I wanted to go in Chicago. I, I've been there my whole life. I love the city and I, I love my friends. And other than my mother, um, I had no family there. You know, I have a cousin up north in the northern suburbs, but um, I probably see him as much on online as I would in person. And I thought, well, you know, you gotta, you gotta change it up every once in a while. <laughs> and oh, what, comfort, you were comfort in a city. I mean, that's different. Uh, yeah. Uh, and okay. I thought, oh, okay. And I quit my job. Um, he had gotten a job here and I quit my job, which also I started networking out here, but um, I didn't know anybody. And I quit yeah. my job and I came here. It was very scary for me. You know, I had never not always supported myself. I had never not had a job and, or, or had some means to a job. And here I am going to a town where I knew no one and I have to start all over again. Yeah, so I would call that a risk level five and that's <laughs> Yeah, that was a risk <laughs> level five. It was for sure. Yeah, so then how did you land at ACG? Well, I learned the art as, the, as an introvert, it was very hard for me, but I learned the art of networking. You know, I just started calling people and saying, can I have a coffee? You know, I was like, <laughs> and, and they did. And people were generous and they sat down with me and they met me for coffee and, and they invited me to lunch and they shared their contacts with me. And I just kept, you know, I would look, I would apply, I would, you know, and then I just talked to this woman this one day and she said, um, yeah, you know, I, I run ACG Denver and it's a great job. However, it's been, I've been doing it a while and I'm thinking of doing something else. And I said, oh, okay. And she said, you know, you have great background. Would you be interested? And I said, well, I'd love to learn more about it. I, you know, people say that and then they don't leave. And I was like, yeah, yeah. okay. But you know, I'd love to learn more about it. And, and then, you know, fast forward a few months and I had done some other projects and done some, some jobs in the interim. Um, I went back to her. Um, I was, you know, without a job again, um, later in the year. And I said, yeah, I just want to circle. I just started calling people again, circling back, love to have coffee, love to see what you're doing. And she said, well, actually I can't talk because I'm leaving my job. I've got, you know, I've got enough, a lot of going on. And I said, oh, what, what's going on? And she said, well, are you interested in, in this job? And I said, well, again, I'd like to learn more about it. She's like, okay, next thing I know, she sends me, <laughs> she introduces me to what, who, a member, but he's the head of the search committee who says, can you meet Tuesday? <laughs> and I said, oh, sure, <laughs> let me update my resume real fast. Um, <clears throat> and I met with them and then they were like, can you meet again? Can you meet again? And, uh, and I got the job. Wow, wow. So how long were you in Denver then kind of before you landed at ACG? Uh, I was about a year and a half, a year maybe. And a half. Yeah, okay. about a couple of years. Almost. Yeah, a year and a half or so. <clears throat> so the person that doesn't like to walk into a room of strangers walked into a city of strangers. <laughs> but yep. then you just kind of one at a time. Sounds like, you know, one-on-one -on -one is your comfort zone. Very and, much so. And you just start talking with folks. And next thing you know, you find a role where now you're, you're connecting all of these business leaders. And now mm -hmm. you're getting to know everyone in the room. Exactly. Hmm. Yep. Very cool. Yeah. 
So would you say that this is your ideal job? You know, I, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I, 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 there are aspects of the job I enjoy tremendously. Um, of course, it's hard question now because I'm stuck at home with COVID as we all are. <laughs> so I feel uh, yeah, so the pandemic changes a lot. Of it does. I mean, it's a state, uh, you know, and I've always worked from home. We don't have an office. And I didn't think I'd like that because I, I really do like working in teams. And I had a large team at the Bar Association. Even when I was at the commission, I had a team of at least four people um, reporting to me. And then at litigation, I had 26. But um, I do like working in teams and I'm very collaborative. And so I have one person working with me now, which is great. And she's phenomenal. It's just, I like, I like to have more, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so, um, I, you know, it's funny because when I got this job, I thought, oh, you know, I worked for a large association. I managed all these, you know, very demanding litigators and 50,000. Well, it wasn't 50,000, but it was the leadership. And wouldn't it be cute to, you know, run a small chapter, you know, of, you know, almost 400 members. And that, that'd be kind of fun. I never worked so hard in my life. <laughs> And that's what you're doing now, right? Is running a small chapter. Well, it's like running a small business. You know, it's yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't have the resources that you would have with the large organization. And you have to be creative. And that's the fun part. We get to be, you know, they're, they're, my, my board's very open. It's like, okay, this doesn't work. Let's try that. Okay, you know, they're staying fluid. They're, they're very open-minded. I mean, they're, they're about making deals work. So, you know, they're, they're not obstructionist in any way. It's just, you know, how can we using our current resources, how we can do, deliver the best value to our members. And it, right now, as, as with everybody, it's a challenge. Yeah, well, and it's more important than ever to be part of an organization like that, I'm guessing, as a business, right? Is because you need to have all those different resources available and different relationships available because, you know, things are probably shutting down in certain areas, but they're booming in others. And yeah, exactly. And, and our most successful members are the ones, as I said before, who have built those relationships. Mm -hmm. And when things shut down, they didn't sit on their hands. They kept working the phones and they came out with deals, you know, so they didn't stop and they stopped and they worked their network. And, and that's, what's important to understand that, you know, you can, I mean, while this is very disruptive and, and it's really hard on industries like ours, which thrive on in-person meetings and all the people we work with in the hospitality industry, my heart goes out to, cause they, they're going through such a rough time. Um, you know, it's, it's really important to have those connections and to maintain, you know, whatever we, whatever business relationships you have, cause that's going to help you survive. Yeah. yeah. So basically you're, this came up yesterday in one of my interviews, you're a leader of leaders. You're leading all these leaders. <laughs> yeah, but I do so in a very kind of not, not flashy way. I mean, there are some people in my position who are the front and center, they're CEOs, they're the, the representative, which, you know, is part of the job, but I much, I, I, like I've always said, I like to be the power behind the throne ah, mm -hmm. um, because I think that's where the true power lies. I don't need to be up and center. In fact, my job is to showcase my members. My job is to put you in, on the podium, to put you know the president, to put the people who are in leadership position, who paid, who worked hard to get there. Mm -hmm. And I want to feature them. I don't want to feature me. You know, everybody knows who I am. They get my emails. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. So uh, that's how I view it. And I view it as their organization. And it's mine too, obviously, but it's their organization and it's, you know, about making them successful. And if they're successful, I'm successful. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I get it. 
Well, Veronica, I could chat with you probably all morning about this, but we, we do have to wrap up at some point. So. Oh, sure. <laughs> Let, let's, uh, I'm going to have to transition there, uh, but I do think we're at kind of where you are today. So when we talked about how did I get here, um, but reflect back on us, if you would, um, what do you think kind of served you best over your career? It could be a personality trait, a strength, or maybe there's a certain habit, but what do you think has served you? Well, you know, being an introvert and actually pretty shy by nature, um, I, I always think before I speak, sometimes too much, but I think um, my lack of impulsiveness, um, I, I tend to be very measured. Um, I tend to not get outwardly flustered. I think some of my members have described me as unflappable, which on the outside, but not on the inside, for sure. <laughs> because of course, you've got that ballerina training, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like, hey, everything's great and everything's graceful, but in the inside, I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think, uh, and I also have a, a strong sense of diplomacy, you know? It, it's, it's kind of an exercise in diplomacy to manage all these competing interests and to make sure that, you know, uh, I want everybody to feel like they're getting value, to, to be happy. However, my ultimate goal is to serve the organization and what's best for the organization and its members. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Wow, great, I, I like that. Those are gonna be, I think, really helpful for folks. And then any other words I haven't asked or that maybe words of wisdom that you heard at one point that really, you know, kind of got you out of a funk or got you out of being stuck or maybe really sat with you well? Yeah, well, I, I'm a, a, a bit of a, as I mentioned, a perfectionist and a control freak. And, and those have hurt me more than they've helped in, in many respects. Well, I don't know, I, could, I shouldn't say that. I mean, my perfectionism has helped a lot. Um, but I think uh, you, I had to learn to forgive myself I don't like to make mistakes mm. and I had to learn to forgive myself for the, you know, even small mistakes, big mistakes, whatever I've done. Um, Cause I said, well, I thought that through so long and hard and look, <laughs> you know, but you know, I'm human and it's okay. People make mistakes. And, and that's what I learned from reading these biographies, like, you know, Ulysses S. Grant or Alexander Hamilton, or, you know, these are people who, you know, they had great achievement, but they made plenty of mistakes and mistakes that cost lives and mm -hmm. thousands of them, you mm -hmm. know? And so Veronica, get over yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and well, that's been a work in progress, so. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that part as well, because it is, uh, those things can help drive you. They can help you know, make you be very thorough and well thought out, but you're right. At some point they can also hinder you, right? And cause you to, to not act when you need to act or yeah. um, to just beat yourself up, which is not a valuable, you know, no, it doesn't bring helpful. out your best. It doesn't bring no. out your best, so. Well, very cool. Well, thank you for sharing your story today. I'm sure that folks are gonna get a lot out of this. I know I did. Uh, again, it's so funny. I feel like I've gotten to know you uh, in the in the last six months, but now I know you even even better. So thank you for sharing. Well, th thank you for uh, allowing me to share, and I hope this is of interest. You know. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it will be. So, uh, listeners, if you enjoyed today's interview, please subscribe below, and you be alerted for other interviews as they're published. And if you have any questions for me or for Veronica, please uh, post them on my website, lifestorycurator.com. 
and I'll make sure that she gets them. And on that note, we'll wrap up and I would encourage everyone, please stay safe, stay well, and keep sharing your stories. Have a great day. Thanks, Kathy.